0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, Range and Livestock Specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is David Bonert. He's with Oregon State University as an animal science professor. He's also the director of the Eastern Oregon Agricultural Research Center and has been doing ruminant nutrition for quite some time. Uh, Dave and I ran into each other at the uh, Pacific Northwest Animal Nutrition Conference in Boise a couple of weeks ago, and it occurred to me that we haven't, we haven't done much discussion on the podcast about basic range cow nutrition. I'm prone, as somebody who's a range nerd, to think about grazing management decisions from the perspective of the plant community, Uh, but if you're going to make a living raising livestock on rangeland plant communities, you have to make it work for the cow, as I'm occasionally reminded by my rancher friend, Ryan Stingley. Uh, So we're going to talk about that today. David, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you, Tip. I appreciate the invitation, and uh, hopefully I can provide some information that will be interesting
0: and useful. I'm certain of it. What was your What was your pathway to becoming a, a ruminant nutritionist with OSU?
1: Well, it was uh, started, I guess, uh, right at the beginning. I grew up on a small uh, ranch and dairy farm in South Central Texas, uh, where we had, like, obviously, dairy cattle, the beef cattle, and sheep and goats. And agriculture has always been important to me and. When I went through high school, I was very active in FFA, um, had some pretty good success there. And in Texas, it's uh, really nice that they had some scholarship opportunities. And in all honesty, agriculture, uh, beef cattle, dairy, um, sheep and goat production allowed me to go to college through the receipt of one of those scholarships through the FFA. And when that happened, I went to undergrad at a a little school in West Texas called Angelo State University, where I also got my master's. Um, just really liked agriculture, wanted to to further my career. I liked academia um, when I went through my master's and ended up going to University of Kentucky for my PhD. Um, while I was there, I uh, got a really good background in ruminant nutrition, specifically beef cattle production and uh, uh Ruminant nutrition, like I said, and I always wanted to get back into extension outreach, and wanted to kind of get it at a branch station. In all honesty, um, I was really familiar with the A and M system. I worked with Ed Houston, who uh, used to be at the AgriLife Texas A and M uh, Center in San Angelo, and that's the way it worked out. I had a the, this job came open. I received it, and uh, I've been lucky enough to be here for. Uh, A little over 21 years.
0: You've been there in Burns for 21 years? Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, That's a neat location. Uh, Oregon has some similarities to Washington. You say on the website that Oregon has about 550,000 beef cows. Uh, I'm not sure what date that statistic comes from, but I think Washington State is somewhere around uh, 250,000 beef cows, probably more dairy cows in Washington State than there are in Oregon State. But uh, you, you mentioned too, in your talk talking in Boise that the majority of cattle anyway, in, uh, in Oregon, or at least for part of their lives, dependent on sagebrush, bunchgrass plant communities. And that because we have a fairly narrow window of active growth on those, uh, we're trying to sync that up with, with the nutritional needs of the cow over time. And that can be a, a significant challenge. Uh, maybe since this is something we really haven't talked, up, talked about before, can you describe uh, kind of the, the the forage quality curve on sagebrush bunchgrass plant communities? And then I guess we'll move to talking about uh, nutrient demand.
1: Sure, sure. Um, and, and I'm assuming Washington is going to be very similar uh, to Oregon, Idaho, uh, Nevada. When we look at uh, beef cows, like you say, and the reason it's really important for that sagebrush bunchgrass range Oregon, you know, depending on the the census and and however it was determined, like like you say, 550,000 beef cows, uh, or uh, Washington might be a little bit less. But most of those are actually uh, east of the Cascades, uh, at least in Oregon. Probably 75% of the, the beef cow herd is is east of the Cascades, where they're going to be using sagebrush bunchgrass range. And what's unique about um, the, P- the Pacific Northwest or the Great Basin, for that matter, where we're usually high elevation and by high elevation, that's going to be cool nights. It's going to be short growing seasons. Um, and then you tie that in with the limited precip uh, that we get. Um, A lot of the area can range anywhere from a little less than 10 inches to maybe as high as getting close to 20, depending on where you're at and and what elevation. But then you also look at the frost-free periods. Um, There's a lot of this area or this region, I should say, that may have 90 days or less uh, of frost-free. And those won't be consecutive days a lot of times, as we all know. And so, consequently, over the millennia, we've the the type of forage that we have are cool season forages. Um, that's contrary to what you may see in a lot of the Midwest or Southern Plains um, in that country, where you'll have not only the cool se- some cool season, but you'll also have warm season. And so, that cool season forage curve, along with that. Uh, climatic and environmental constraints that I just mentioned will cause a very narrow what I call window of forage availability. Um, we might have 45, depending on the year, 45 to 60 days of what I will call adequate forage quality where we're going to be at or above nutrient requirements for a lactating cow. And most of us in, in, the, in the Pacific Northwest are spring calving on rangeland for a variety of reasons. So consequently, we're really looking at a, a fairly narrow window of adequate forage quality that we're going to have to be careful, you know, leading into uh, essentially the breeding season as well as then uh, once we wean or, or actually get about mid-summer, sometime around that uh, July-August period, forage quality is really starting to crash with these cool season forages.
0: Yeah, and how does that sync up with what the cow's body demands in terms of her cycle?
1: It usually syncs up fairly well with the way most people manage their herd. Um, there, there are some outliers, but in general, most people are going to be calving, uh, depending on your location, sometime in mid-February to middle of March to maybe as early as May. And what that allows is you're going to have to provide adequate nutrition for those cows in that late gestation period. So either through if you're grazing, you're going to have to supplement them somehow um, normally. Um, But if you're most of us are feeding some kind of harvested forage, hay or or uh, uh, corn stalks or something like that, if, if you have access to it and you're going to either have to have adequate nutrition in that hay, or you're going to need to provide a supplement. And that's usually occurring up into calving and maybe a little after calving because we really can't turn out or get on a lot of our uh, rangelands until late April to, to maybe first of June, or depending on, on your location and where you're at. So that, that, period of, of time of right after calving um, becomes really critical that you provide them a good, uh, good start on nutrition or be able to maintain or have them in a decent body condition score because we know when that lactation really kicks in, it's going to be pulling a lot of demand and that normally coincides with when we start getting green up. And so then that the, the cows aren't losing weight and they're uh, Getting adequate an adequate nutrition level heading into the breeding season, so that they hopefully can rebreed and then have that calf in the following year.
0: Yeah. What are the consequences if they don't get that?
1: Well, you know, the one thing when you look at culling of what we do with cattle, uh, in general, we're selecting on reproductive efficiency, and a lot of times we're selecting for the right animal for that environment. Simply because that's if you're retaining retaining, uh, your replacements a lot of times, because if those cows can stay in the system with how you manage it, they're going to be maintained. Um, if they're not receiving adequate nutrition, either by cow type, um, or environmental constraints or whatever the the nutritional challenge or environmental challenge may be, you're going to not have the adequate nutrition for that cow to start cycling, um, in a timely fashion so that they can rebreed to have a calf and maintain that cal- uh, calving interval of, of, of less than a year or, or right at a year. So that those that's probably the biggest issue. If you're not going to have adequate nutrition during that time, and, and at least historically what we've always looked at is that cow um, that we we're not getting her an adequate nutrition uh, heading into the breeding season She's probably not going to breed back um, as good as we want her to. Uh, some of the work that we've done here has shown if 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 they're not in adequate body condition score and having a positive plane of nutrition heading into that that breeding season, we're probably going to have a fifteen to twenty percent decrease in pregnancy rate
0: and historically, the Pacific Northwest has been fairly well insulated from the kind of uh spring drought effects or negative effects on forage quality that you sometimes see in the Great Plains or the South. Uh, Because of our wintertime precipitation pattern, spring forage is fairly reliable, Uh, but maybe not so much in the winter. One of the things that I'm curious about is that it seems like historically there's a lot more winter grazing on rangeland, which from a range perspective, I like quite a bit. I think there's some, some, you know some challenges to that in terms of water and logistics, and maybe bigger cows than we used to have. But uh, what would you say? Do you have any idea what the history of that is in Oregon, and whether that is a shift that has taken place? And do you see any any movement back that direction?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's a shift that's taken place, but I think there's definitely a, a lot of interest, and there's movement in that direction. Uh, For a lot of the things that I think you're insinuating about, about, you know, grazing late season or or winter grazing um, has some opportunity there for a variety of things from rangeland management to decrease potentially reducing fuel loads um, and using it as a strategic management tool. However, nutrition can be an issue with that winter grazing. So that, those are the, that's one of the big issues that we have to, to watch with winter grazing is that we're providing an adequate supplementation program or we have some kind of uh, you know if rangeland has forage kosher or winter fat or something that can maintain the nutrition on that cow, um, winter winter grazing can work well. The other thing that I think, depending on the precip and the way the temp is or temperature is, because in the Pacific Northwest, that's one thing, climate change or climate variability is something we deal with every year. Um, there's no such thing as an average year, I don't think, uh, or there is obviously mathematically, but um, they don't happen very often according to that uh, mathematical average. And so when... When you're trying to 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 manage some of that rangeland with the invasives that we have, and what I'm saying is specifically cheatgrass, uh, head could be in there. ventanata usually comes on a little later, uh, along with our bunch grasses. But because of the ability of some of those annuals to respond to a little bit warmer temperature and precip. Um, Winter grazing sometimes, depending on the forage composition that you've got on that rangeland, can provide an opportunity for some of that control and also to get some adequate uh, nutrition, um, taking advantage of those annuals.
0: Yeah. Well, how would you characterize forage quality in terms of crude protein? If we went out and measured, uh, took a forage sample, had it analyzed for forage quality on blue bunch grass range on December 15th. Yeah.
1: Uh, What would those, what might those values look like? You know, it it could be variable, but you're going to be down there in that three to 4% 4%. protein. I mean, it's going to, and that cow in all honesty at that time, she's probably going to be in gestation, but without a calf at her side, her requirement, you know, with adequate intake is probably going to be somewhere in that six and a half to seven range is what she needs. So she's going to need, um, you know, if, if it's 3% short and she's eating 20 pounds or, you know, almost 30 pounds a day, um, you know, she's going to need half to the three quarter pound of protein provided in her supplement.
0: Right. And how is that most commonly provided uh, with folks in your part of Oregon?
1: Yeah. And it, it, that's pretty, you know, it, again, that it depends on the operation. Uh, yeah. Alfalfa is always good. Um, that's just a, a really, really good feed, but not all, not everybody can get out on, on rangeland. It's going to be really tough, um, to do that. So if you're feeding hay or, or you're, you're in a situation where you on private deeded ground, for instance, rangeland, you can provide alfalfa if it works for you. Um, and it, and it can work well. We can supplement it frequently. Some of the work we did here early on, as well as some of the work, um, by Ed Houston, who I mentioned, one of my mentors early on, uh, we can we know we can provide alfalfa uh, once a week to maybe twice a week and decrease labor costs and, and still get the adequate protein because the nitrogen recycle, the unique ability to ruminant. To, to nitrogen recycle. That's one. Um, you could feed a uh, hand feed and the smaller operations can do that by feeding cottonseed meal or, or soybean meal or, or distiller's grains, whatever you may have available in your area. But for most of the people on the range, they're usually trying to do it either with tubs um, or molasses mixes or blocks um, as a way to get some kind of protein intake into them as well as, um, you know, they're pretty good ways to manipulate distribution on the rangeland as well.
0: Yeah. In terms of the, of the calf, uh, you've, you've done a fair bit of research, uh, with others on, on fetal programming and how the nutrition of the, of the mother affects the performance of the calf later in life. Uh, can you give us just a, the 30-second the elevator speech on kind of what's going on there, and then we'll talk about it in more detail.
1: Sure. Um, historically, when, when we looked at it supplementing beef cows, for instance, gestating beef cows, um, we really only looked at the cow per se. We wanted a healthy calf. I don't want to say we didn't worry about the calf, but we wanted to make sure the cow had good, adequate uh, nutrition to maintain a body condition score or a nutritional status that allowed her to rebreed. And if that occurred, we were normally okay with, uh, with a good, healthy calf, um, because you wanted them in a good body condition score heading into that, uh, uh, calving season. Well, um, some research over the last 15, 20 years, and, and it actually started with the Barker hypothesis where he looked at a lot of human nutrition that occurred during the Dutch famine uh, during World War II where they saw that the nutrition of the maternal dam or mother um, in the, in that sense had a really uh, large effect on the subsequent health and, and productivity or performance You know, I don't want to say performance on humans, but uh, that's how it relates to livestock. They were seeing a lot of health issues and how well those human infants and then as they became adults, the the health issues that were there just simply due to the poor nutrition that the mother had uh, during gestation. So work with uh, a variety of livestock species have shown uh, that that's probably also occurring with our Uh, beef cattle with sheep and goats, swine, um, uh, most all the livestock species it's been shown that it's something we probably took for granted. Um, But we know now that maternal nutrition is affecting uh, the subsequent performance and and long-term productivity of that offspring. And that's something that really isn't incorporated much, if at all, in our nutrient requirements uh, that we use.
0: Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned in your talk in Boise is that um, you know, most most ranchers have been taught and allow cow body condition to vary through the year where they kind of cycle in and out of decent body condition, uh, trying to gain body condition when the environment allows it, and also trying to make sure you've got adequate uh, condition uh, during critical periods, like going into the breeding season so that they'll uh, actually cycle and breed back. Uh, does that have... Does that cycling have an effect then uh, with this fetal programming? Does it have an effect on calf performance? And if so, you know, do we know if there's like a critical threshold? If they get below, you know, if you, if you get to a two or something, does that trigger a calf response where it doesn't if they only go down to a three?
1: Yeah, that that's a really really good question, and that's in all honesty, um, hopefully one of the the points that I made clear at that at the nutrition conference in Boise because. Um, if you if you look at historically in and in a perfect world, the way um, we as nutritionists have always said is, yeah, if you maintain that cow at a body condition score of five to a six year long, that's probably the best case scenario that we could do because that animal's always in a good body condition score and everything is going to work out well. Well, but that's expensive. Yeah, exactly, and, and realistically, it doesn't happen because of that, like especially in the Pacific Northwest, that that forage production curve as well as forage quality curve, that just doesn't uh, coincide with being able to maintain cow weight. So they cycle, and so we designed a study, uh, Ronaldo Cook and I, and, and a couple of graduate students, where we wanted to look at that a few years ago, where we actually held cows that were in, let's say, a, a uh, they were in a body condition score right around a four, um, right after breeding. And we had other cows that were at a body condition score six, or a really good body condition score, right after breeding. And we AI'd, so they were all to a, a single sire, um, confirmed pregnant. And then we broke it down into groups. We had that body condition score. We had some of that body condition score four cows. We held basically the same uh Nutrition all the way through to calving. The sixes, we did the same thing. And then we structured it based on uh, what trimester they were in. If they were in the first trimester, we increased them from four to six and then held them at six through calving. Second trimester, same thing, held them through four to the beginning of the second and then went to six and held them to calving. And then we did the same thing in the third. So basically, what we were doing was seeing by weight cycling, is there a period that you know, is, is more advantageous to let them cycle. Is it better to not let them cycle? We wanted to see that. And what was interesting in that study was that the ones we held at four and six, those calves, when we weaned them, you know, so 200, roughly 200 days, um, after calving, they had no difference in body weight of those calves at weaning. Um, however, uh, those cow, those calves, and I should say the ones that were increased in the first trimester. There was no difference either. But those that were allowed to increase in body condition score from the beginning of the second to calving, as well as the beginning of the third to calving, had uh, roughly a, a 15 to 20 pound increase in weaning weight simply by when that increase in nutrition or, or, you know, allow them to weight cycle occurred. So that suggests that, you know, at least from a weaning weight perspective, when we're looking at that, that, that weight cycling and allowing them to come into a positive plane of nutrition from, let's say mid to late gestation so that they're in a good body condition score at calving seem to be one of the, uh, a management scenario that works out well for us. And in all honesty, historically, that's what we've done. That's when it's cheaper for right. us to put weight on cows.
0: Right. Well, that's good news. A couple of different philosophies that are out there regarding how to take care of cows. One is that uh, we have cows with superior genetics to what we had a hundred years ago, or at least you know so the story goes, and and that it pays you back to take care of the cow well, regardless of what uh, those those inputs might be. The other perspective, and I, I don't want to name names for who might represent the other end of the, end of the spectrum, and, and maybe it's not quite that extreme, but you know, the other side says that you want to select, you, you apply whatever stresses your environment would naturally apply to the animals, and whichever ones can make it in that environment you keep those and get rid of the ones that don't, and don't spend a ton of money, ton of money on them. And I feel like most ranchers are somewhere in the middle, where uh, you know you're not going to spend hundreds of dollars per cow trying to overcome all of these deficiencies with with an animal that really is incredibly unsuited to her environment. But on the flip side, you don't just, uh, yeah, leave leave cows out there winter grazing on three percent crude protein and hope for the best because that doesn't go so well. Uh, what's your perspective on, on where that balance might be?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And, and I think I know who you're talking about because I think he's a mutual colleague or friend of ours <laughs> just <laughs> north of here. Um, and and, and that's, a, that's a really good point. And, that, and that's where I was bringing up earlier in our conversation today where I said that, you know, how you manage your animals Is almost that's the biggest selection criteria that we have and culling criteria because how we manage our animals and how we want to do it, um, those that can get pregnant in that scenario, we keep, those that don't um, go away. And so it is something that we have to weigh. um, And how much money, what's that return on investment? Because If you've got a little bit of a sharp pencil, you can calculate what a five or ten percent reduction in pregnancy rates is going to cost you. The other thing is, is if you're retaining ownership on your your females, if you're you know you're raising your own replacements, that's not a cheap option either. And a lot of times, when people that heifer calves, we usually baby them for a little bit, and she's got her first calf on the ground, she'll usually rebreed pretty easy because she's in good shape but then when she's had a whole year with that calf at her side she's got another one growing in her belly she calves again she's still growing a little bit and um, that third you know when we're trying to get her pregnant for that third time that's when we really lose those animals that we put a lot of money in now you can look at whatever perspective like you just said and i think a lot of people are somewhere in the middle as you mentioned but if you're selecting animals that can survive in your management scenario that's great. But trying to get that heifer or the second calf heifer, however you want to, whatever you want to call them, cow that's had two calves, to try to make it with the old mature cows that have been on the range for longer. You know, that's not really fair either um, in my perspective. Right. And so it gets down to, you know, how you manage them, how you run them. Um, maybe you can have a little bit better pasture that those younger or thinner cows can go on. And, and it, it, it's why every ranch is different. And in every location there, and we and we just try to manage it appropriately, because you uh, know, I mean, the cow herd is it, that's the factory uh, for most of us, and whatever we can do to make that animal fit our production environment. Mm-hmm. Mine may be different than yours, may be different than Joe's, may be different than our other neighbor down the road, but as long as we're fairly consistent on how we manage our animals. Then we get into that selection, and then it gets back into some of the fetal programming, like we were maybe talking about um, of how we select animals and, and when we select animals to maybe keep that uh, that that's the challenge we've got as researchers I think moving forward is how do we provide that information uh, to our stakeholders or our producers so that they can make the best decision uh, for the future of their operation
0: yeah, I would add to that that it many of the uh, uh, Large-scale economic analyses of ranch profitability over the last 20 years that I've been paying attention have pretty consistently indicated that the rancher who is a a, a lower-cost producer is the one that consistently makes money. Uh, but of course, if you push that to the extreme, then you're you're either not keeping cows alive or they're not breeding back, and and that not having animals, having a high percentage of open cows every year is a a profit killer from the start. So you've got to kind of get that dialed in.
1: Yes, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of it gets down to as well is, is what kind of animal are you selecting? Um, You know, I think a lot of the West is Angus is pretty black and, and, you know, the maintenance works on those too, but um, if you're running on some of those low-input operations and you're raising replacements, for instance, it's going to be really tough for some of those continental breeds, for instance, to make it versus some of the more European or maternal breeds. And it gets back to your objective too. I mean, on, on and your resource base of what you have. If you've got the groceries to to handle maybe a larger cow or maybe a different breed cow, um, they those animals potentially have the genetics to take advantage of the forage, whereas um they may not in a resource limited situation and then that's really going to make it hard on on ranches sometimes if if they've got our purchasing replacements for instance and they get the ones that weren't raised in that kind of an environment or um they were developed in an environment that was not as resource limiting those animals will fall out fairly quickly
0: right you mentioned in your in your talk that the the NRC, the National Research Council, requirements have recently been revised. Are there any significant changes in there that would be worth talking about?
1: Yeah, There's not a whole lot. I mean, it, it, it's, it's shinier and new. Um, you know, I still sometimes even go back. I shouldn't say that as a nutritionist, right? We should be going forward. But the old 1984 version of NRC um, was on the crude protein system and and TDN, and NEM and NEG, or Net Energy for Maintenance and Energy for Gain. And mm-hmm. it did a pretty good job predicting performance. Um, and then in mm-hmm. 1996, and then the update that occurred in 2000, uh, the past version came out and we went to a metabolizable protein system. And in the metabolizable protein system, we're looking at more of what's actually available to the animal rather than the gross crude protein of what they're consuming. And, um, you know, that was a good step forward. And even that model did a really good job of predicting, uh, performance, especially energetically, um, did a decent job trying to manage ruminal fermentation and microbial protein production and so forth. Um, it did a li- it had a little bit of a problem in our area though, because if you plugged it in on the grazing side, it said the cows were going to die, <laughs> you know, when we had three or four hundred pounds, or maybe five hundred pounds of forage the acre, because the model that was used didn't incorporate data. You know, models are only as good as the data that's used to make them, right? I mean, we all know yeah. that. And I don't think that model was as well. And so there were there was a commitment made to try to improve that. And, and so in the most recent edition, the 2016 edition uh, for animal or beef cattle nutrient requirements that came out. Um, they expanded on that they've tried to make some fixes um, one one of the, the the really one of the only changes that I'm super aware of and it's not even that big was uh, mineral requirements really didn't change cobalt was the only one went from like 0.1 part per million I believe up to, to 0.15 and everything else and the unique thing and I think if you remember from the talk I might have been where what you're, what you're getting to now is I showed that other than for lactation, the milk component, not not really worrying about the fetus, the mineral requirements aren't different um, during gestation, lactation, or dry period. For especially our micro minerals, you know your copper, your your zinc, um, those things. So that's where when we get into the 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 point I was wanting to make in that in that talk, or or try to get out was. We do not have a good feel for a lot of the nutrient requirements of beef cattle when, especially, I don't want to say beef cattle in general, because we do for a lot of the calves that are growing and bulls and things like that that we're aware of. But that gestating cow, we're not really aware of how the gestational nutrition is affecting the long-term production of that calf. And that hasn't been included in the nutrient requirements. And I think that's another area of research that we've got to get a handle on the timing, the amount, um, how all that's going to work because um, that's information that our stakeholders are going to need. in an ever increasingly um, competitive world, the ones that are able to take advantage of that, I think are going to have a little bit of a leg up.
0: We have quite a few listeners to the podcast that are what I would call uh, natural resource professionals. I think there's a decent mix of, of ranchers and natural resource professionals. Uh, If you were giving a a summary of of what, say, somebody who's a brand new range con with the BLM, didn't grow up around cattle, uh, needs to know about range cattle nutrition so that they can communicate well with uh, their permittees, what would be the basics that they need to understand?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I know we have a few (laughs) range camps where Um, that, those scenarios come up and, and I'm kind of on the beef cattle side, I'm get asked basically the same question you just asked me and, and to do for, for the, the the students or the the stakeholders that we have involved. And, you know, I think more, most importantly, I I think it boils down to two things is to have an open line of communication and listen to why producers may want to get out as early as they can. Um, I think they understand that they can all the time, but um, you know, if we graze early spring every year, that's not a good thing. And I think most producers know that and realize it. But there's a reason that we need to take advantage of that green grass um, sometimes as well, and to be able to work that in, like winter grazing, like you said, it can be economical and it can work. But we also have to worry about getting that cow rebred, and why why is that important? One of it, it gets down to this, and um, one thing that I ask. A lot of these kids that come out do not come from a beef background. They do not come from a ranch background. And I ask them, why do we raise cattle? And granted, I'm usually near the middle to the end of the of the sessions when we're, when we're talking about it with these students and they're going into okay targeted grazing we're going to reduce cheap grass we're going to harvest forage and we're going to reduce fuel loads we're going to do um we're going to try to use it to manipulate the landscape in a way that is going to help um either wildlife whatever the the ranch management objective may be and I go yes it, cattle does that but that's not why we raise cattle why do we raise cattle and they're sitting there looking at me blank eyed a lot of times and you have to make money, (laughs) you know? I mean, and, and so I think those, those new range cons that may not have any experience just to have an open enough mind and realize that with proper grazing, hopefully with proper grazing, we, and with the knowledge that we have that you can get you can address your landscape management objectives, your rangeland management, your mod have an adequate monitoring program, look at your trend, make sure you're going in the right direction, but also be aware that that producer is not going to be there to help you with some of those lands with some of those problems if he's not making money. And so it's just, I would say more than anything, have an open communication because each ranch is going to be different. Objectives are going to be different, be open and willing to listen to them and, and, realize that that producer knows a little bit of information as well. Um, and and try to make it a joint decision as much as possible um, when you're starting to talk about uh, range improvements, when you start talking about movement, when you talk about timing dates on and off. Um, to me, communication and just having an awareness that for most producers, and I would say the Lions, the, the vast majority of producers, They don't want to hurt their resource because that that is going to be, um, you know, their future um, when they're out there. And they want to manage it in a way that they're going to have it for for decades to come as well and their family will. So it's a there's a mutual, you know, the, the livestock industry needs to get something out of it. And rangeland management needs to be done in a way so that that resource is going to be sustainable and be able to make it long term.
0: Yeah, I would echo that with regard to grazing management. I, I see lots of ranches that are dealing with the legacy effects of overgrazing that occurred seventy-five to a hundred years ago, and you know, so somebody new shows up, <clears throat> a, you know, brand new BLM range con biologist with, you know, fish and wildlife, and they, uh, we talked about this in the episode with Floyd Reed. They they look at the landscape and in their mental scale of um, rangeland health, you know, maybe they give it a a five on a scale of one to 10, and they'd like it to be, you know, an eight or better. And the rancher may be aware that it was at a two 20 years ago, and he's been making some progress since then, and that progress doesn't happen quickly, usually on semi-arid rangelands, And in my experience, ranchers typically have pretty good observations about what's going on in the plant community. And many of those changes don't happen directly or or even primarily in response to livestock grazing. A lot of those changes in the plant community are, are fairly episodic in response to a variety of climate variables that may have nothing whatsoever to do with livestock grazing. And I think most places we don't have... An excessive number of livestock out there anymore, uh, but but the the positive change doesn't happen overnight. And so it's important for new people, when I say new, new to a location, new to a job, new to a context, new to individual ranchers, uh, to to listen more than you talk and. Give
1: it a little time, right? And, and also, in all honesty, I'll just add to that. I mean, ask the right questions, you know, and, and not in a way because that rancher or that permittee may have knowledge, like you're saying, of legacy effects of some management that happened decades ago that is ha- that is doing it. I know a colleague of mine at, at EOU and with the Eastern Oregon Research Center in Union will look at, at less than more. She she's shown that the you know the homestead act when it occurred and when people tried to grow crops in a lot of this region it didn't work well <laughs> because of high elevation and water but yet when they when they plowed the ground and did that that legacy effect is still seen today and people think it might be just due to grazing and I don't want to say grazing is always good it can be bad if it's not done right but it may not be due to grazing some of the issues that, that may be on that landscape and with the communication that goes on um, between hopefully a range con and the permittee cattle grazing, depending on your objective, can be a, a wonderful tool and an economical tool on the landscape scale.
0: Right, especially for some of the problems that we have on on large acreages, there's not enough money to support mechanical and chemical treatments to do anything about it. Uh you know, in, in certain areas, sometimes that money materializes, but in general, you know, people like to talk about sustainability that, that includes uh, economic sustainability. And yeah, we've got to use some of the least expensive tools to accomplish something if we're going to make a difference. Yeah. I think one of the, uh, one of the problems with with relationships is the assumption that uh, ranchers don't know what they're doing that that all of the all of the rangeland conditions that a person sees today are the direct result of whoever has been managing there in the last 10 years and your point about the homestead act is apropos you know at one point there were only 640 acres allocated to a family and in a landscape where you would ordinarily, you know, if we might say it takes 50 acres to run a cow, uh, you, you can't make a living on 640 acres if it only grows 400 pounds of usable forage per year. And that took a long time to recover from. I've seen a number of places in Washington state where there was dryland wheat farming back in the 1950s in places where there never should have been. Dryland wheat never should have been a plow in it, and those often got planted back to uh, you know say a two or three grass mixture, and those those two to three species were pretty persistent for about twenty five to thirty years, and it I'm not sure exactly what all the soil processes are that uh, that change or mature over that period of time before something starts to be different, but but typically it takes twenty five to thirty years before you start to see the plant community diversify and allow some of the historical natives or even more diverse um, suite of naturalized species to move back in and provide some variety. So the, the, the time frame required for that kind of change is often fairly long. And, and, and again, it may, be, it may be that it requires... Um, Back-to-back variables. I think I've mentioned before that I I saw somebody from Utah State, I believe, discussing uh, long-term plant community change on one of the Utah experiment stations, and they were analyzing changes in plant community uh, based on you know whatever climate variables they could find to try to attribute to. And and one of the things that that came out was that where there were back-to-back years of above-average spring precipitation, uh, there, were, uh, it, it, there were really punctuated changes in plant species composition because you would have, you know, if, if viable seed production is episodic, then uh, you get one year where you produce good seed. But if the next year is a drought year, maybe there's not sufficient moisture to germinate all that seed that you produced in year one. And so back-to-back years of good spring precipitation would result in a dramatic increase in this case of uh, perennial wildflowers and, and other forbs. Uh, but you, may wait, you might wait 20 years for those, uh, those stars to line up and, and make a difference.
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, kind of related to that, um, some work we did, Dave Ganskop and I did when I first got here looking at the effects of that precip also on forage quality. Um, one of the things that, that, that we've seen is that if we have a below average crop year precip, um, and again, I know the average thing, but if we have essentially what a lot of us call a drought to a moderate drought, where we don't get adequate spring precip to get that grass to really grow well um, and take off, forage quality is actually pretty darn good. Um, and you know, a lot of the old timers will, will say, or the ranchers will say, you know, the grass, there wasn't much out there, but it was pretty strong this year. And our data, what we've shown was that in those drought years, that plant just doesn't have a, have the, the, the resources, the, the preset, the water resource to really go vegetative and put up all the, the, the lignin and the cellulose and everything, the, the structure and to go reproductive, the seed heads and the plant stays really good. Fairly good quality. There may not be as much there, but it's good quality, and the animals perform well if you're not overstocked. Versus a year that's either at, uh, above average, where you get a lot of, of forage growth. You know, you get really good uh, uh, nutrition or, or forage quality in that plant early on, but then it falls off dramatically once they really get mature and, and, and do that. So, depending on your your crop your precip. It can also affect your management of your cattle and how you're gonna supplement them potentially or how we manage them, because we know that that really has an effect or a fairly significant effect on forage quality, just your crop, your preset.
0: Yeah, and going back to your earlier point about uh, doing targeted grazing. That can be that can that can often Cost the rancher something depending on what the environmental conditions are in that year. If you're trying to force animals onto plants that they would otherwise avoid, they're usually avoiding it for a good reason. And so when they're forced onto it through increasing animal density uh, or whatever the mechanism is, uh, they may be losing body condition during that period of time because they're consuming something that's below what their requirements are. Right. And, yeah. and I think for that reason, there's interest in, in looking at things like service contracts. Exactly. So that if,
1: That's where I was. If somebody's
0: going. grazing BLM range in the springtime to try to stop Medusa head. <clears throat> uh, you know, they don't have those targeted grazing treatment AUMs removed from their uh
1: from their AUMs for the year right and and you know and that's that's exactly that's a line of research that's actively going on right now which i'm sure you're i know you're aware of i know barry perryman down in nevada uh, kirk davies here um and and uh, and chad boyd others that are that are looking at that specifically and, and i know folks at the university of idaho as well for sure that you know if we can use cattle, especially on the landscape scale, to start addressing some of those environmental um, or land management objectives. You know, it just makes sense that there's some kind of ecosystem service contract because, you know, there is a value to that. And, but we have to do the work again. um, You know, I guess that's job security, but we have to do the work to show what that benefit may be. Um, Because, you know, look, you know, we're spending what three billion dollars a year on federal fire suppression. Um, I think mm-hmm. the last number I saw. So you know, if we can reduce that number, you know, that's a benefit. I mean, it's not a cost, right? Because it didn't, but it's a benefit because we're we might be able to mitigate some of the some of the 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 fire prone areas simply by grazing is one example. There's others. Um, so yeah, I I really think what you're talking about there is an area that I see is is. Definitely potential to help the sustainability of livestock and rangeland management operations or our ecosystem or service contracts for sure.
0: And in doing that, we have to acknowledge that 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 some of the value comes from a, a cost that is borne by the rancher. Absolutely,
1: that's that's correct.
0: Well, Dave, is there is there a place people can go to find more information if they're interested in? Uh, getting into some of this nutritional and fetal programming stuff in more
1: depth. Sure. The easiest way to do it so you don't have to write it down is if, if you type in E O A R C into Google or anywhere and you'll pop up our website, the Eastern Oregon Agricultural Research Center. That's what it stands for. E O A R C. Um, and you'll come to our website. We have a station in Burns. We have a station in Union and, um, you can find the information that's there, our contact information's there, and should be able to help you out if you got any specific questions.
0: That sounds good. Uh, D- David, thank you for your time.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture.